This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 358. And the quote of the day is from the late great Ndugu Chancellor who said, If you want to be a professional drummer, you need to be stylistically sound, musically sound, and technically sound. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, and this is session 358 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And as you have probably heard by now, we lost an amazing friend and amazing mentor, Leon Ndugu Chancellor. And I've had the pleasure of having Ndugu on the podcast before. I've spent a lot of time with him as well, so he has become a friend of mine and a mentor to me. And this loss hurts. He was 65 years old. And for those of you who do not know sort of the breadth of his work. I mean, he worked with everyone from George Benson to Stanley Clark, the Crusaders, George Duke, Herbie Hancock, John Lee Hooker, Thelonious Monk, Lionel Richie, Kenny Rogers, Carlos Santana, Frank Sinatra, Donna Summers, The Temptations, Tina Turner, Weather Report. He also played on Thriller, which is the largest or the most selling record of all time, the Michael Jackson record Thriller. And this was an untimely, uh, untimely passing. He was ill for a while, and uh, he he lost his battle to cancer. So, I wanted to mention this for those of you who don't know, and I want you and I urge you to go back and listen to. It's actually episode nine. I had him on the podcast, so it was a very long time ago. Uh, but I encourage you to go back and listen to that interview. Get to know Indugu. Get to know the the man he was, the player he was. And uh, just just an amazing human being and just a very, very sad loss for the drumming community and just the world. The guy, I, I can't say enough about how much of a, a consummate professional he was, how, how he was just the sweetest guy, the, one of the nicest people you would ever meet, ever want to meet, and one of the, just one of the greatest drummers in the world. So uh, rest easy, Ndugu Chancellor. And again, for all of you who never heard that episode, I urge you to go back and listen to it. It's episode number nine. So now I want to move forward. And um, the interview that I have today is great. This is Willie Jones III. So Willie is, he is a staple in the New York jazz scene. And he's played with Roy Hargrove, recorded with Herbie Hancock, Horace Silver, and a bunch of other A-list luminaries. And he also owns his own record label, puts out his own records. And the interesting part of this conversation is how we talk about, you know, the reasoning behind why he started his own record label and the ability to put out records on his own and go also go out and find other artists. That is this, it's turned into this other thing. Uh, but we also just talk about him getting to New York, getting into the scene, and just, there's just all sorts of nuggets of information in here. So some great, some great, great stuff from an A-lister. And uh, we're going to get right into it with the one and only Willie Jones III. Enjoy. Willie, how are you this afternoon, man? Good. I'm doing fine. Great to be here. It is great to have you. So I was going to say Willie Jones, but you're Willie Jones the third. So I I know that your your father uh, your father was a was a jazz musician too. But was your grandfather as well? No, just my father. My grandfather wasn't a musician at all. Uh, my father was a jazz musician, piano player uh, on the West Coast in Los Angeles. So that's where I was raised. 
I got on the LA jazz scene. So t- was there, I mean, we can get into a little bit of uh, your backstory, but was there, I mean, was there a real LA jazz scene when you were coming up? Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, I, I grew up, I'm a child of the seventies, seventies slash eighties. And in the seventies, I mean, I grew up around musicians like Indigo Chancellor, mm-hmm. uh, Teddy. Ed- yeah. He's one of my favorite Teddy Edwards. A legendary saxophone player. Uh-huh. Um, who else? Uh, uh, Donald Dean, drummer who played for years. He played with uh, Les McCann. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just all the, the local jazz musicians. There were a lot of local jazz clubs um, around. And uh, the scene was, was flourishing in the 70s. By the time I became serious about music, though, that was starting to die down. And uh, by the time I started actually playing professionally, uh, my sights were already set on moving to New York. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's so, what I was going to say, because you think jazz, you think New York. Exactly. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's always been and, and always will be like the, it's the Mecca for, mm-hmm. for jazz. You know, uh, I, I think it's the Mecca for the arts in general, but yeah. for jazz, especially, it's, it's the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... But you know, LA and LA to this day still has great players. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just or California, I should say. But there's all it's always a challenge to find places to play in in uh, California and LA in particular, mm-hmm. specifically. And it's funny that you mentioned Ndugu because we had we had lunch a few times, and one of the times that he was talking about his how now maybe players don't have the same sort of vocabulary and don't have the same skill sets that they did years ago. So when you, you know, you, you think about Ndugu, you think, okay, he played on all these pop records. He played on, you know, he played on Thriller and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, that's, that's sort of one side of Ndugu, but he also plays everything else. He plays funk, he plays jazz, he plays rock. I mean, he's a great jazz player, you know? Exactly. I mean, no, I was just going to say, like, I know Ndugu, from a time where when I first, I mean, I knew him as a kid and I, I saw him play when I was growing up. So this was before uh, the Michael Jackson music and, and George Duke. And I, like, I never knew him as, oh, he's a great pop drummer or a great fusion drummer. Mm-hmm. I knew him and was a huge fan of his from playing with Gerald Wilson, uh, Harold Land. Um, you know, uh, Henry Franklin, mm-hmm. great West Coast bass player. Um, my father did some local gigs, he used to play with, with Ndugu. I mean, he was a great jazz drummer who could play all the different styles, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. authentic. I mean, yeah. he, he was a great jazz drummer coming up. He was a great funk drummer. He could play fusion rock. He was well-versed in all the styles. Uh, and today that's, that's kind of rare to see. One of the things he famous, famously said that he always tried to, he always tried to eliminate the holes in his playing. So if yeah. you play this style, you figure it out, learn how to play it and, and learn how to play it correctly. And you, you said that, that, that now it's less common in players. Why do you think that is? Well, for one, I'll say that. I mean, the st- different the different styles now have become so specialized. Mm-hmm. Um, 
technically speaking. I mean, if you listen to, uh, for example, like a lot of the musicians who played on Motown records mm-hmm. of like, let's say the late 60s, you know, a lot of those musicians were jazz musicians or they were musicians who played jazz. Right. Whereas now, I mean, you know, with the, in the 70s and going on to the 80s, the style has become so stylized um, for the better. But you have musicians who have grown and specialized only in that style. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll say specifically for drummers, I mean, I, I think it's just they, they tend to only concentrate on that style. Uh, and, the, and their ears are not as open to studying the history of, okay, I'm, I'm going to listen to the history of jazz and the history of R&B. Uh, as opposed to only being open to what's hot right now in that particular style that they're engulfed in, mm-hmm. at, at they're playing in. Uh, and Ndugu was, I mean, he came up in a time where you listen to everything. Right. The, radios, the radio stations were more open to playing music from different styles. Okay, that's, com- that's completely alien right now. You cannot, you only hear music, if you hear a pop station, that's all you're going to hear, what's mm-hmm. hot right now. Uh, if you hear a jazz station, you're only going to hear uh, jazz stations. And most young musicians just, uh, they may not even be hit to certain jazz radio stations, or they may be in a city where they don't even get radio stations, mm-hmm. or jazz radio stations, I should say. So, uh, but to answer your question, most uh, music, young musicians and drummers in particular, for whatever reason, they're only uh they're only well versed in that particular style of music, be it fusion or rock, or you know, or even jazz. Um, and even if they tell you that they're open to different styles, <laughs> right? It and not 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 really, right? You know, they're they're re- they're, they're pr- they probably could technically play swing or what have you, but they're really based from an authentic standpoint. They're more versed. And rock, funk, you know, even hip hop, you know, if you will. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, in Dugu, he's—it's rare. It's really rare now. But even back then, a drummer like in Dugu, or you know, Harvey Mason or Steve Gadd—I mean, those those were drummers where you could hear them on a jazz record. You could hear Steve Gadd on a Chick Career record, you know, uh, and then maybe hear him on a Paul Simon record. I mean. And, it, and it's authentic. Right. You right. know, this. Do you think that's, I mean, why do you think that is? Do you think that it's because we don't need to be as versatile as we used to? You know, like there's not, there's no such thing. It's like nobody's doing like casuals now and then doing a session and then going, doing this thing. And the, like, I, I feel like those days are sort of gone, right? Where Exactly. Where you're getting, you know, called for five different types of gigs in a week. Those days are gone. And, and in some ways, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in, in some ways, it's, you know, what's the bad, the bad side of the, the downside of that is that, you okay, if you're not getting caught for those casuals, because doing a casual gig, you, you have to be able to play anything. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on the casual, depending on the gig, whatever situation. Um, and so if you come up only playing what's hot at, the, at this given time, 
you might become a master of that. And that's great for that particular idiom. But then you you run the risk of, of having conceptually having tunnel vision in what you are great at, mm-hmm. you know, or what yeah. you become great at, as opposed to, uh, you know, well, maybe you have to play a dance show. Maybe you have to play a Broadway show. Maybe you have to play bebop this particular night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, so, I mean, it, it's, it, let me just say this. It's, I mean, it's very, it's very difficult to do that. Like, I mean, it's easy for me to say, oh, how important it is to be versatile. And I try to be as versatile as possible, but it is very difficult because the styles, the styles have become so hot, so more advanced now, especially technically. Right. That's actually what I was going to ask you about. How do you think all of these guys were able to do that? How do you think Steve Gadd could master all these styles? How do you think Ndugu could do that? Do you think it's a matter of guys now get so myopic and so tunnel vision on one thing that they elevate it to that next level and they're spending all their time getting like almost like athletes and acrobats with this style? Uh, and back then people were like, I just need to, I got to learn how to play this and I need to learn how to play it authentically. I don't need to be able to, you know, do cartwheels while I'm playing it. There you go. I think in some ways it is kind of like a sport or it has become like athletics where now I'm a drummer. So I'm specifically for drums. It's like, well, you know, how much can you play? Mm-hmm. Like it, it almost becomes like you exhaust. Okay, well, how how far can I? Okay, and it's great, and and I mean and that's incredible, and it's great to look at. But I mean, you know, and I can say this with with authority that like Ndugu, his playing, it's all about how you feel, right? Which is and and that's it. That's how music should be anyway. Mm-hmm. No, regardless of what the style is, is does it feel good? You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's whether it's whether you're swinging, whether you're playing funk, R&B, country, whatever. Right. But but when it comes to drummers, yeah, I mean, it it's almost like a sport. Like, well, how you know how how much technique can you demonstrate? And as any musician, you should try to develop as much technique as possible. Um, but technique should just be a means to an end of expressing yourself, expressing the ideas you want to express and hopefully those ideas are to make the music feel as good as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I w- I doesn't was, always work out that way. Though. Right. I, I was actually, I was practicing last night and I was really focused. I was just really, I spent about three hours practicing and all I was working on was dynamics. And I sort of had this inner thought to myself of saying, I feel like, technical ability has gone through the roof. I mean, every day I watch, you know, I can see something on YouTube or on Instagram or something like that. And I say, there's no way that I'm ever going to be able to play something like that. Um, so I think the technical ability has gone through the roof, but I, this is my personal opinion. I'd love to hear your feedback on it, but I feel like the nuances of playing have decreased significantly. Oh, without a doubt. So, I mean, that, you know, everyone can play all this stuff, but there's not a lot of nuances in, in what's happening. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, even, even let's say playing with brushes. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, and of course, if you're playing jazz, I mean, brushes, to me, that's like 
prerequisite. You should be, you know, be able to play brushes. That's an art form. But in some instances, it seems like that's a lost art with a lot of young drummers mm-hmm. playing the brushes. Uh, and when I sometimes when I see drummers and they're playing all this stuff, I, I'm as amazed as the next person. And and so and it's inspirational. Like I'm like, okay, I get inspired to like. Let me work on my technique. I'm, it's something, you know, it's, it's a never-ending uh, journey to mm-hmm. become as better technically, musically, dynamically as possible. But uh, the next level is to, okay, take that technique and to make music out of it. Can you play it at a softer value? Right. Not, you know, not how loud can you play or to play that you have to play at a loud value. Mm-hmm. Uh and sometimes that gets lost because it's so impressive to see gospel chops. You know, it, it, that's that's very impressive. But okay, well, let's play it at a lower volume, or mm-hmm. or play those same things, play those exact same combinations, but play with brushes. <laughs> right. That, like, to me, that's the next level. Like, okay, you know, make it make get the same effect and. Uh, playing with acoustic instruments and maybe you're playing behind a vocalist. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's a challenge, but to me, that's, you know, that's the next level. You, you can't lose the most important thing uh, with any instrument, but, you know, we're drummers here, so we're talking about, okay, uh, you know, maybe you can make, you can always make a living to, at a master class displaying your your technique and that's mm-hmm. great but you can't always be hired by a vocalist or by a horn player or by a trio if you can only play a lot of technique and and play at one value mm-hmm. if you can play mm-hmm. as musical as possible uh and with dynamics you can always work in any situation yeah you know yeah. so and that's and that's what i always you know i always try to tell my students I'm like, anybody can develop technique. That just takes correct repetition. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to right. develop a certain amount of technique, but in order, in order to uh, take that technique and be musical with it and be able to come down in volume with it, that's the next level. And that's, that's something to ensure, oh, you'll always be able to work with anyone mm-hmm. in any situation. Yeah. And I, and I will say that you can speak about a lot of this from, or, you know, all of this from authority. I've been watching, you know, prepping for this interview. I've been watching a bunch of your videos and things like that. And you, I mean, by all standards, you have amazing technique, you have chops, you have whatever you you want to call that. Right. I appreciate that. I I try. I try to. (laughs) You do. I mean, you do. All right. You don't need me to tell you, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to publicly say it. Um, But you have the other aspect. You have the musicality. You play, you know, like I was watching the live at Dizzy's and you're, you know, you're, you're playing with brushes, you're playing softly with sticks and then you solo and you have, you can, you can go to the roof and, and you have speed and, and dynamics and, and all that kind of stuff. What do you, what do you think is the, is the breakdown as players or the hurdle that, that we as players have to get over to get to that other side, to get to the side where you're, you're listening to dynamics. You're you're worried about touch and feel and sound and and all the nuances that we're talking about. Uh, you, I, you know, I think that just 
being aware and being conscious enough to study the history and and listen to you know uh, the history of the music and and I'm talking about different styles of music like not I mean I'm a jazz drummer at mm-hmm. my core that's what I do but um, recently uh, I was checking out a video on YouTube of, of Bill Withers mm-hmm. and James Gadson was, was playing drums Man. okay you know and so like I, I know James right. you know in, from LA and but if you I mean and of course was it the kiss of my love video uh, I can't remember but it's a live yeah. video that they're playing live it's a concert okay and uh, I mean it's so funky so soulful but if you turn the video, if you turn the volume down and just watch uh, James Gadsden play, you, you, it would be hard compared to today's standards of how drummers play, their approach. You would have a hard time uh, really stating what style he's playing. Like, the, I mean, he's, he's playing traditional mm. grip. He could be playing jazz. I mean, he, he he's on the hi-hat obviously and he's but he's playing traditional his his attack on the drums it's like that of a jazz drum right right so i mean to any drummer who wants to play r&b slash funk slash pocket or what they call pocket i would say (laughs) please check this video out because whenever i see a drummer playing what they call pocket now it's you got to hit the snare so hard everything is everything is loud yeah Okay, you know, just I just maybe because of technology and the sound system can be louder, so everything is louder. James Gadsden, oh, his touch is so sensitive, it's so musical. I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, but yet, I mean, that's that's R and B at its finest. That's mm-hmm. funk at its finest, soulful. So I would say to any student, and this goes across the board. Again, it goes across the board of any style. Check out the masters. Check out Indugu. Check out Steve Gadd. Mm-hmm. You know, check out Billy Higgins. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, those guys are not hitting the drums. They're not like smacking the drums. They're they're like they're 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 playing the drums. They're making music. I mean, it's and see to me that never changes. And if you want to master any style, or if you or as we're talking about, you want to talk about be versatile. Check out the masters. Mm-hmm. Go to the recordings. Like that's not rocket science. That that's just about okay. This guy did it the best. So let me. That's the that's the bar. So let me check that out. Just listen to it. If you grow up right. listening to that, then you stand a good chance of of doing well in that mm-hmm. style. Or yeah. be, you stand you stand a good ch- chance of being versatile. Yeah. I don't know what what made me think of this. It just popped into my head. I was thinking about um, the home at last. That song, that Steely Dan song. Bernard Purdy plays that halftime yes. shuffle. And sure, you know, like I could sit down and play that groove all day long, right? But can right. I make it feel like Bernard Purdy? That is, those are two different. Uh, those are two different things, you know. <laughs> being able to well, play it and be, being able to make it feel like Bernard Purdy makes it feel right. Well. I mean, but even to that, I would say, I mean, like you're you're not. I mean, Bernard Purdy is Bernard Purdy, right? So we're right. we're t- <laughs> or, or <laughs> you know, I mean, really, it's like 
I mean, for me, I'm like, well, man, I want to, I want to swing like Billy Higgins does on Lee Morgan's Sidewinder. Or I want. Oh, I love that too. Like that, that's my bar, but that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but you know, he's he's one, he was one of my teachers, one of my mentors. But that I, but I've listened to him enough, and I'm smart enough to know, okay, that's where the bar is. Mm-hmm. You know, Billy Higgins, Philly Joe Jones, Max Roach. Tootie Heat. So if I listen to them enough, I'm going to make it feel good in the way that Willie, that, as Willie Jones III does. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as you, as Nick, you're going to make, it's going to feel good if you study Bernard Purdy. It may not right. feel like, you know, it, hopefully, because I mean, you don't want to, you want to develop your own voice. Mm-hmm. You want to have, so, you know, if you study Bernard Purdy, study Steve Gadd, you're going to make it feel good in the way that Nick makes it feel. Right. Makes the rest of the band feel the, the way the audience hears it, the way they feel it. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's the ultimate, that's your sure. real objective, is you want to take, okay, I was influenced by Bernard Purdy and all these cats, and I'll make it feel good my way, but that's the way you, ha- you have to have your ears open to those cats, to those mm-hmm. drummers, who mastered uh, making music feel good? Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. that's that's the best you can do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know listening to Bernard, like you said, I, I don't. I'm never gonna get there, but at least using that as inspiration and 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 understanding that there are these sort of you know these nuances that go along with it. I keep using that word because I think that's an you know something important to think about. There are these dynamics. There are you know there is spacing between the notes that you can stretch and and shrink right. and things like that. And and once you you know once you start to really hear those things, I think it opens up your playing so much, and you're it's almost like an epiphany. You're like, oh man, now I know why Jeff Picaro felt so good because he, you know, he concentrated on those things or whoever, whoever it may be. Yeah, exactly. That's, it's hard to get to that point though. How, I mean, is it just. Well, yeah, I mean, it takes time. I mean, and, and there's no, there's no set timetable. Uh, I mean, you know, when I was trying to, when I was developing and practicing, of course you practice whatever, you know, your rudiments and combinations what have you around the drum set and you're listening to records. And I think every, every musician hits that or they come to that point where it's like, well, when will I become good enough to where, uh, you know, I'll be a first call drummer or, or I'll be able to make a living as a drummer or, you know, work consistently locally or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I, you know, I, I definitely came to that point. And the answer is that there's there's no set time. You just have to constantly develop and practice and listen. I can't stress listening enough. And everybody has their own their own inner timetable. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Now the now the obvious point becomes well, when all of a sudden everybody's calling you, you know, well there's a reason for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you you you've reached that point. But you know, it, it, it happens in its own time mm-hmm. and uh, it happens in different places. And, and, you know, you never know where, like you, you might go further than, uh, than Bernard Purdy or whoever, like you, you never know. You, those, those are, those are your heroes. Those are our heroes. And then 
you know, you know that's where the bar is, but uh, yeah, you, you, you go as far as you can and no one knows how far you will go. Mm-hmm. And, and when that timetable is, you know, when that time comes where, oh, wow, I've reached a point where uh, people are calling me for, for jobs or tours or recordings. Um, all you can do is, is be honest with yourself and police yourself to, and be real, be uh, realistic to where you are mm-hmm. in your development. Because, um, I mean, if you're, if, as long as you're realistic, um, and I always tell my students, I'm like, you have to police yourself because you can practice four hours every day. But if you're practicing incorrectly, uh, you know, you might get better. You might not. You, you can develop how to play fast, but you're playing fast unevenly and it's not clear, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't develop good time because you didn't develop it playing at a slow tempo. Right. <laughs> uh, but. Yeah, if you're if you're realistic and policing yourself and how you develop and practice, um, eventually somebody's going to come knocking on your door. Yeah, asking you to 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 sub for someone, and maybe mm-hmm. that leads to doing the tour or recording. That that's how it happens for everybody. That's how it happens for me. Yeah, I read somewhere that you said when you were 14, you decided to get really serious about about playing drums and about practicing. What was that shift for you, and how how did your practicing change, and how well, did your that, approach to practi- practicing change? Yeah, well, I, I got sort of serious. I started taking drum lessons when I was fourteen. I've been I had been playing long before that, mm-hmm. but I just en- I just enjoyed playing drums. Like I was never serious about practicing. I didn't like to practice. Right. I just I always loved to have drumsticks in my hand, and if it wasn't drumsticks, it was pencils, what have you. But when I was 14, I started taking private lessons and I started, I sort of got serious about practicing, but not too much. Um, <laughs> but the next year in high school, I joined the marching band and my band teacher told me, he said, well, you, you know, for some reason in my mind, I just thought that I would play snare, snare drum in the marching band, like in the drum line, mm-hmm. even though, I, even though I didn't have any technique. So when the band teacher told me, well, you you don't have the the hands to play snare drum, you have to play bass drum, meaning that I have to carry a bass drum marching across the the football field for a whole year. So I'm like, oh, man. So it was almost like from, you know, my ego was like, oh, damn, Uh, I got to carry this bass drum. So and I'm looking at the, the, the snare line and that was very impressive to see those guys. So that. That caused me to really get serious about rudiments and and practicing rudiments and the importance of having uh, being able to execute rudiments. Because if nothing else, the, the snare line was like that was first class. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 tri, what they call the tritoms or the quads, those were like that's middle class. And the carrying a bass drum on a football field was like low class. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you know. That's when I got really serious about uh, practicing and, and spending two to three hours practicing paradiddles and five stroke rolls, and double strokes, and singles, stuff like that. And then maybe a year or two later, I, I started seriously thinking about, okay, you know, playing the drum set. 
I had always, I had always thought about that and wanting to be a professional jazz musician, jazz drummer. But when I was 16, 17, I started thinking seriously about practicing to be a professional jazz drummer. Mm-hmm. You know, but it all started once I got in, in high school and the whole marching band thing. That was where I started seriously concentrating on my technique. So you said that you always sort of wanted to be a jazz musician. Was that the influence of, of your of your father? I mean, what was your like? Yes. What was your household yes. like growing up? Yes, it, my 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 household. It was. It, I mean, I come from a musical household, so it was like I heard everything. My my father was a jazz musician, so the whole spectrum of like wanting to be a jazz musician came from him. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was like maybe five, six, seven, you know, my mom worked nine to five, but she sang in church, you know, and she played, you know, different styles around the house. So I heard gospel music. I had two oldest sisters who played the popular music of the day. Uh, Were so you allowed to every- listen to it in your house? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I heard everything. I heard everything from the Jackson Five to the Doobie Brothers, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, you name it, I, I mm-hmm. heard it. And But, you know, even before I was in s- school, my father would take me to rehearsals with him. So just the lifestyle of a jazz musician appealed to me. Right. You don't have to wake up early. You get to go to a <laughs> rehearsal. You rehearse and, you you know, then you go to a gig at night. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, like when I was seven, that that lifestyle appealed to me. Like, oh, man, that's that's what I want to do. Right. What was you Willie know, Jones the third like at seven years old? Oh, well, during the day, uh, you know, it, I mean, I, like any other kid, I watched TV. I watched cartoons. I watched Three Stooges, uh, old movies. But, but I think also there was another side of that seven-year-old who liked being around jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. Just watching them set up or watching them, listening to them talk. Like, you know, that was that was very attractive to me, even at mm-hmm. the age of seven or eight. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but but at the same time, I had, you know, with any of a seven, eight year old, I want to go outside and play football or, or basketball for me was more so. And uh, I watched regular, you know, cartoons, TV shows and what have you. But in the back of my mind, in, when they had career day in grade school, even then I was like, I want to be a jazz musician. Right. Right. <laughs> so, were you a good? Um, were you a good student? I was average. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I was. I was good enough. I stayed like in high school. I was. I was good enough to stay eligible to be in the marching band and to be on the basketball team. Right. Right. So I, I wasn't the most as disciplined as I was in music. I was just the opposite in academics. I just I did well enough just enough to to be to be eligible to be on the basketball team and, and in a marching band. And that was partly why I asked that because a lot of times when someone's so focused on something else whether it be sort of like you know whether it be a musician or being an entrepreneur or whatever it is a lot of times they'll say I was either okay at school or I was really bad at school. But I was real I was excelling in these other things. And it's I, I sort of look at it as brain capacity and you, you can't do everything well. So you gotta yeah. sort of pick and choose. You gotta pick and choose your battles. I mean looking back on it, like I'm not gonna make any excuses. Like I, I could have done better. But 
Right. Um, I think that's no, just naturally what happens. Yeah, just what happens. I, I, I was lazy. <laughs> right. Like, and but the thing I was interested in, uh, drums and, and sports, it, I was just so kept, uh, you know, just so into uh, basketball and into drums mm-hmm. that, you know, when they say, okay, you have to have a C average to to participate in, in the marching band. I'm like, okay, so, you know, as, as, as bad as that is to say, like, that was my bar. I was like, okay, so I got to make sure, you know, I keep a 2.3, whatever. Right. To <laughs> to be on the basketball team or to be in on uh, in the marching band. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that's that's the way I, that's what happened. And, uh, Which is but, funny because you know, you know, you know that you have the discipline because you had it with, with other things. It's just funny yeah, how that plays out. Exactly. I displayed it in, in, in musical terms. Whatever. Right. Did you ever think there was a, a career in basketball for you? No. 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 I, I, although that, that was the other thing I wanted to do. If I was going to be a jazz musician, I wanted to be uh, a basketball player. But I knew very early that uh, I wasn't going to be 6'5". Right. You know. Hey, man. Uh, I appreciate the I, I choir just, over here. <laughs> I just wasn't good enough, you know. I mean, I'm good for a musician. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good for for a musician, but but yeah. in sports, now the drum drums are my calling. I I, think knew that, I knew it early. Yeah, I I hit that mark when I was about 16 years old. I was a decent baseball player, uh, and but I was getting to be a better drummer. And I said I can either really pursue drumming or really pursue trying to play baseball. <laughs> and I was like, I'm right. five seven, and I'm average at best at baseball and uh, right. maybe this drumming thing could could work out for me yeah i mean the thing for me like i, I discovered drums before i as far as i can remember like before i before i was started grade school i had already discovered drums mm-hmm. so you know drums it was a constant throughout my whole life childhood and then at, when i became a teenager i became pretty good at basketball and i was on the high school team but like I, I didn't start. Like I wasn't going to. There was, there was no future. Like that became apparent very early. Right. Uh, but, but to this day, I, I play basketball for enjoyment. You know. Yeah. And I, and I, I play with other musicians. You know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but a drums, bunch of failed, a bunch of other failed athletes. It, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know. But uh, at this point, it, it keeps me in shape. You know, it keeps me in pretty decent shape. So. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I no, feel like I need to start a. I gotta start a softball team with all of my, uh, <laughs> all of my musician buddies. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Hey, what are you going to do with all those cracked, broken cymbals that you have sitting in the corner of your studio? Here's an idea. Trade them in for a new dream cymbal or gong. Now, you can take all your cymbals, bring them in, and for each inch of cymbal that you bring in, you're going to get a dollar off towards your next dream cymbal or gong. Bring in two ride cymbals that are 20 inches each, you get $40 off your next dream cymbal or gong. And that's going to go a long way because they're priced well below everyone else's prices. But the main thing is they sound great. And I want to let you hear them. So here is a sample of some dream cymbals.
Be sure to check out Dream and all their great products at dreamsymbols.com. You may sit at the back of the stage, but we all know the band revolves around you. You set the tempo, the intensity, and most importantly, the tone. And the easiest way to set the tone is to play Evans Drumheads with Level 360 technology. Trusted by industry-leading drummers like Chris Coleman and Anika Niles, Evans Drumheads offer the most consistent fit for every drum and max tunability all around. Thanks to Level 360 technology, Evans Drumheads fit perfectly across your shell and allowed for increased tension to help you find that sweet spot. Plus, they take you beyond the normal tuning range for higher highs and lower lows. Now the sound you want will always be the sound you get. To learn more about Evans and 360 technology, go to evansdrumheads.com. Uh, there was one thing that that you mentioned, jumping around a little bit about sound and and about what you what you take from other drummers and and sonic qualities and things like that. And I know that you you cited Roy Haynes for his left hand comping and Tony Williams for his ride cymbal, and it, it was an interesting comment to me, uh, because I I find it a little difficult to to really separate those things and hear the nuances again, that word nuances hear the difference between, you know, how someone is comping. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and how you, and, and how you actually can put those things into your playing? Yeah. Well, let, let me say up front that Roy Haynes and Tony Williams, uh, they both like Tony Williams had a great left hand. He was great at comping at comping and Roy Haynes had a, has still does has a great ride symbol. Um, I think when I, when I was saying that, you know, I'm just trying to give an example of how you pick different things from different drummers. Sure. Uh, but, but that said, uh, I mean, yeah, some people, certain things just stick out to you. I mean, so, <clears throat> excuse me, like for, for in terms of the ride symbol, I mean, Roy Haynes play, has played great up-tempo, mm-hmm. you know, but whenever I'm talking about, like, if I have to pick a few drummers and I'm talking about playing straight ahead and I'm talking about your articulation on the ride cymbal at a fast tempo, Tony Williams just comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Like he, or Max Roach comes to mind. The clarity of the ride cymbal. Um and I always have to give the example of four and more mm-hmm. Miles Davis, four and more record. Yeah. And Tony Williams, I mean, he's playing that ride cymbal at that tempo and he's not even playing the hi-hat. Right. So that's, I mean, that's just like, you know, cause sometimes you could play the hot, I mean, the ride cymbal fast and you and the hi-hat helps you balance, create a balance with playing the ride cymbal at that tempo. But if you're just playing the ride cymbal that fast, and you're not playing the hi hat. That's just all. That's just strict technique on with your wrist and your fingering and how you're navigating that stick. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so I, I always gotta mention him first, or or Max Roach uh, playing Cherokee on the Max Roach Clifford Brown record. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a host of others. I mean, you know, I could mention Roy Haynes or or Philly Joe, who's one of my favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then comping, yeah, I mean, uh, Roy Haynes, his left hand is just is just so musical, so so rhythmic at the same time. 
Billy Higgins too. You know, I mean, his left hand, how how he and again how he attacks the snare, how he plays it. You know, um, those are just the, those are the names of those are some of the drummers that just come to my mind. But there are many. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sort of drawing a blank right now. But is there? Can you can you hear? And I'm I know, I already know the answer to this, and I don't know why I'm asking it, but. If I put on a record, can you tell the difference between, you know, Philly Joe Jones or Tony Williams playing the ride cymbal? Yes. Yeah? Yes. If you put on a Tony Williams, uh, Roy Haynes, and Philly, those if those three in particular, I can pretty much tell the difference. But here here's even more telling. I can tell the difference, uh, what they're doing with the left with the left hand. Mm. Like like Roy Roy Haynes, it would be real obvious. From what he's doing with his left hand, more so with the with the ride symbol. Although I could tell both. Um, Tony Williams, yeah, the same. I could t- depending on what he's. I can tell what he's doing from what he's doing on the drums and the ride symbol. Mm-hmm. Philly Joe, the same. I could, it, you know, I could I could tell the difference. Yeah, I could tell the difference. The three of them from the ride symbol, but even more telling what they're playing on the drums also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it, it, it becomes a little more difficult, but s- sometimes their style sticks out so much. Like Elvin, like I, you can tell Elvin right away. Yeah. Yeah. You can tell w- from what he's playing on the drums, from how he's comping. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on the tempo, you can tell like just what he's doing on the ride cymbal. Right. What he's playing. So, um, but again, those drummers, you just, the drummers we're talking about, they're so stylized. They're so individual in their style that it's it's easier, uh, a little easier to tell. Right. Like well, I, I think I think for a lot of people, they everything just blends together. You know, and they just hear sickening, 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 and it's just like you know, one swing pattern sounds like the next, sounds like the next, sounds like the next. Uh, right. But if if you listen to them enough, though. Right, their voice, their voice, and let's just go back to just the ride symbol itself. If you listen to, if you listen to Tony Williams enough, his voice comes out in that ride symbol. If you listen to Billy Higgins, you can, I mean, you can tell within within seconds. Oh, that's Billy Higgins, right? Just from the ride symbol alone. Mm-hmm. Roy Haynes, like their voice comes out in the ride symbol. Right. It's funny. I I had. Do you know Justin Faulkner? Yes, I don't know him well, but I know Justin. He plays with Branford. Yes. Marcel. Yeah. yeah. So great player, right? And uh, Yeah, great player. And you know, we were talking about I said, What are you what are you working on now? And you know, he said, Man, I'm just trying to get my ride symbol right. <laughs> you know, it's like everyone is still just trying to just trying to figure it out, you know. It's a lot it's a lost art. Yeah. It is. Uh, and, yeah. and and amongst the younger drummers I'm talking about. Okay, mm-hmm. you you can't find. I mean, if you're just talking about playing the drums, everybody can play, right? If you come if you come to New York, you know, like I, I teach at Northwestern, and and you know, a drummer, a student might say to me, "Well, you know, I I want to go to New York," and I'm like, "Everybody can play in New York. Mm-hmm. All the young drummers can play the drums. Not all of them can play the ride cymbal, right? And now, right. what do I mean by that? Not all of them have." Not all of them have developed a voice on the ride cymbal, and that's what we're talking about. Like, it, I mean, that's a lifetime 
uh, journey. It's like I'm still trying to develop my ride simple mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. this day. Uh, but all the young drummers, as far as what they play around the drum set, it's I mean that's you know that's impressive. But the ride simple that's a whole other that's another ball game. Yeah, it's amazing how much of a how much of a lost art that is, and and I think part of, partly is just because there's not a ton of jazz on contemporary music, you know, radio, Spotify. You're you're not you don't hear a lot of jazz walking into this into the department store, right? That's um, true. That's true. And it's amazing to me how there's two sides to the jazz coin, and on one side it seems like it's a total dying art. And then on the other side, there's this whole thriving undercurrent and, and subculture of, I don't want to say subculture, but a whole culture of jazz that, that is going on that is totally skipped over by, by mainstream media. But, but it's so it's, it's happening, you know, oh, like, yeah. there's a lot yeah. happening. I mean, like there, there's, there's people, there's, Look, there's always going to be drummers out here trying to swing. That's just like as far as it's never going to die. Mm-hmm. Now the question becomes: When will, or as we say, mainstream media or the music media? When will they rediscover it? Right. That's that's the question. Like, how long will it be before they realize? Oh, swing is not old fashioned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, playing right. the right symbols. Oh, that's sexy too. Like you, you can you can be great playing the ride symbol when will you know that that's the question but they're they're drummers i mean they're great they're drummers in california pl- still playing they're you know in the bay area in yeah. la so and i'm an optimist a- but i think it's i feel like there it's there's something happening i feel like there's it's oh, there it, it it's happening again like i think you know, I think there's a lot of forward-thinking players who are pushing the envelope a little bit. They're getting more recognition. Right. I think it's, yes. I think it's coming back because everything waxes and wanes, right? So, exactly. Yeah, I think it's coming it, back. Exactly. It's it's always, you know, the the only thing to it is you just have to make sure, like, just be here when it comes back. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. like, no, really, like, like in the '70s, the '70s was a great decade for rock. Mm-hmm. It was a great it was a great decade for R&B. Like like some of the best like in the history of of popular music, some of the best R&B was made in the 70s. Like you mm-hmm. can just go go down to artists, go down to groups in, uh, in rock music. I mean, it was a great decade. It just was musically speaking. You know, the rock music and R&B popular music in general made so many leaps jazz music or if you're playing straight ahead not so much mm-hmm. like meaning that the media uh turned away from from jazz but there were still musicians playing jazz like billy higgins never stopped playing jazz mill jackson never stopped cedar walton never stopped tootie heath never stopped playing jazz the, the, the modern jazz quartet i mean uh bob crenshaw oscar peterson the musicians were always there playing. There was always drummers playing straight ahead. Yeah. You know, and then mm-hmm. the 80s came along and then all of a sudden it became Vogue again. Yeah. You know, so we just have to wait out the, this dry period. <laughs> <laughs> What's the hardest part about being a jazz musician now? Um, for me, personally, sure. there's nothing hard. Nothing. No? No. I mean... 
things can always be better, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. But I've I've been very fortunate uh, that I've always like I've I've always worked like I've I've always had a gig, mm-hmm. um, and I've always gone from gig to gig. Like I and and I always say I'm very fortunate because you know it's never if, when you're freelancing it's never guaranteed. Mm-hmm. E- even if you're great, like even if no matter how good you are, nothing is guaranteed. So I've been fortunate to. Uh, I played with Roy Hargrove for like eight years. I've played with uh, I played with Hank Jones. I've played with uh, I played with Horace Silver. Mm-hmm. I played with you know I did a couple of tours with with Herbie. Yeah. Um, uh, Kurt Elling. I played with Kurt Elling. Uh, I've done some gigs. I mean with everybody. Like I've. I've never stopped. I work now with Russell Malone. I've been very fortunate to to do a couple of tours with my own band. Like, so, I mean, I guess to answer that question about the challenges is to say is to stay motivated and disciplined to hustle up your own work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And now that's a challenge. Like, it's a challenge for me personally. But, but then again. I, I've been very blessed to like, I work all the time. I work. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm very, I'm very fortunate and very uh, happy to say that. Yeah. I, ever since I moved to New York and, and even before I moved to New York, I worked in, in Los Angeles. Right. I worked, I, you know, locally and, and I, I was working with Arturo Sandoval and I got through my teacher to the heat. You know, I was able to work with Mill Jackson for three weeks like I, I always work, so right. Um, yeah, no complaints here. <laughs> that's that's good. It's not going to do anything anyway, right? If um, right now you said that that you are to your, in your core, to your core, you're a jazz drummer. Would you consider yourself a jazz? Are you a jazz purist? Jazz purist, meaning that if it is not sort of in if it's not honoring the tradition and not in the same vein as some of the, the older jazz recordings in that lineage, are you turned off by it? Well, well, let me say this. I'm not, I won't say that I'm turned off. I mean, I, this sounds cliche, but I, you know, I like good music. Right. It makes me feel a certain way. If it's a good melody to it, I'm, I, I love it. I love all right. styles of music. Right. I pl- but I play two kind, or, or there's two kinds of music: good music and bad music. And I, I, you know, I, I think I feel that way for the most part. Right. But, but to answer your question, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I could say I'm a purist, but I'll, I, I would rather put it this way: I judge jazz music to the way people judge other styles of music. And what I what I mean is that like, how do you judge whether you whether something is rock, whether something is rock, or whether right. it's funk? How do you know whether it's it's reggae, whether it's speed metal? Like, how do you come to the conclusion of what what do you want to call what do you call that style? Right. That's how that I come to the same conclusion on what I what I say what I call jazz. Sure. Now, I, you know, everything, I don't, I'm, I'm not, you all, you have to follow the t- tradition. You have to, I mean, I believe in studying the tradition. Mm-hmm. I believe, you know, but 
I mean, to make it simple, if you change the rhythm, you change the rhythmic, you know, then people tend to call it something different. Right, right. That makes sense. Well, and the reason, the main reason why I asked that was because I know that you have a record label and the the sort of the catalyst behind that was you saying that I want to be able to play and record the music that I like, jazz, and I want to be able to just do that. And so that's why I'm going to start my label. And so I was, that's, I was stemming, that question was stemming right. from, from that. Well, that. right. Well, and more specific to that, I mean, I'm not, because I shouldn't say, well, I wasn't able to record jazz. I couldn't record, like, I've tried to get a record deal years ago with, you know, with uh, certain labels. I've mm-hmm. reached out to certain labels, and I wasn't able to secure a recording deal, you know, or not even a one-off. Mm-hmm. So just out of necessity, like, I want to make my own record. You know, I... Um, Necessity then, is the mother of invention. Exactly. I'm not going to wait for some company to say, okay, well, now we think you're you're valuable enough or we can make some money or you're good enough. to. Uh, I'll do it myself. And now technology has made it where, you know, it's too easy. Right, right. So, but that said, yeah, I mean, I love jazz. I love the swing. That's what I do. I love other styles of music. But I mean, I'm all about recording uh, straight ahead stuff. Right, right. You know, that's that's what I do. But I'm always open to do anything. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a closed-minded type of artist. Uh, but it just it was born out of the two things: the necessity to record my own project, and then also, I've always it was instilled in me a long time ago how important it is to own your own work. Right. Yep. My father instilled that into me first. Then Billy Higgins instilled it in me much later. You know, so the entrepreneurial aspect of it, it's like, hey, you know, why wait? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and there's, a, you know, you're taking control of your career. You don't, you're not sitting around waiting for the phone to, to ring, you know, theoretically with the labels or anyone who's going to take a chance. It's like, you know, I'll take the chance on myself and I know that I exactly. can do it. So I might as well just take the chance on myself to do it. Exactly. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. Uh, Willie, I think that's a, I think that's a good place to stop, man. There, that was, uh, cool. that was a, an amazing conversation. You have me thinking about a lot of, a lot of things and, and, and just really opened my mind uh, about, about some stuff. So now I'm going to go tonight and be, <laughs> be swinging on the ride symbol. Um, but I, oh, I want to, cool. I want to thank you for, for being a part of this, man. I do, I do appreciate you taking the time to chat. I appreciate you keeping the jazz tradition alive and, and pushing boundaries in, in your own unique way as well. And, thank you. And, uh, and man, I got to tell you again that that live at Dizzy's is is a great video. If anyone wants to check that out, go to YouTube and watch it. It's amazing. So, oh man, thank you so much, Nick. I'm I'm honored that you you want to speak to me and have me on your podcast. Of course, and yes, it's great, man. Appreciate it. Likewise, man. I appreciate you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Stay warm there in New York, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. You take care. All right. Thanks. Peace. You too. 
There you have it, the one and only Willie Jones the third. And you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 358, and you can get all the show notes for everything that we talk about there, links how to how you can find him and all that fun stuff. Also, if you haven't already, please leave a rating or a review. You can do that on iTunes. And what that does is let other people who are checking out the podcast know whether it's good or not, but it also helps it show up higher in the search results so more people find out about it, blah, 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 blah. It's very easy for you. It takes about a minute. Just go to iTunes, click write a review, and you can rate it one to five and leave your comments there. So I would appreciate that. And again, it takes about a minute and it's totally free. So I would appreciate that. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.